Great to uh, see all of you today and have the privilege of worshiping with you as I was uh, standing down here next to my wife, Melanie. I was, if I get a little emotional, you'll just have to forgive me, but I was thinking, I just so much love the body of Christ and uh, just the privilege it is to worship with you and then uh, have people come up and joining the church and then having a baptism and then I get the privilege of uh, sharing the scripture with you. So uh, thank, thank you for the opportunity that you uh, have given me to be here and us to be here. This is just great, just great day. Um, if uh, you are visiting with us, what we've been doing is a series out of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And uh, last week we covered Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar was given this dream of this huge statue, a head of gold, the shoulders were silver, the thighs were bronze, and the feet were made of iron and clay. And he created a crisis at court because he didn't understand the dream, and he needed somebody to tell him the dream and interpret it. And as we saw last week, eventually Daniel went to the Lord of heaven, received both the dream and the interpretation, went into court and explained that to Nebuchadnezzar, and the crisis was resolved. Uh, We're going to look at Daniel chapter 3 today, which is one of the more famous chapters in the book, but to set the stage, I want to rewind back to the end of Daniel chapter 2, just to make a couple of comments here. Um, At the end of Daniel 2, the author tells us this is what happened at the end of the crisis. He says, then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. And then it says, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Uh, The reason I wanted to read that and get that out there is because when we come to Daniel 3, Daniel's not mentioned, and everybody says, well, where was Daniel when this event happened? And I think it was because he was at court in Babylon. He was not, as we'll see, out in the plain of Dura where the event occurs. So let's go on and read the first seven verses of Daniel 3, and then we'll pray and take a look at this next narrative. Here's the beginning of Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Well, as we'll see here in a few minutes, not everybody fell down and worshipped that image. Let's uh, bow together, and then we'll uh, look at what happens in this narrative and what the Lord would uh, teach us from it. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness and your mercy. And Lord, as I said a few moments ago, I just want to thank you for your church, your body of Christ, your people. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to worship you alone, serve you alone, and show your love to a lost and needy world. Father, thank you so much for Deer Creek Church, for every one of its people, for its staff, its leadership, its impact on this community. And Father, we also thank you today for the scripture. And we ask now that you might enlighten our minds, that you might touch our hearts, that you might move us to be people of faithfulness to you. Thank you for this text. We pray that you would speak, and we ask this now in the powerful and sovereign name of Jesus. Amen. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I am a rabid college basketball fan. One of the greatest rivalries in college basketball is between the Duke Blue Devils, which are located in Durham, North Carolina, and their arch rivals, the University of North Carolina Tar Heels, six miles down the road in Chapel Hill. A few years back, I had the great opportunity, and for me it was a privilege, to attend a basketball game in the Duke Stadium. It's known as Cameron Indoor Stadium. And uh, this is a picture of the Duke fans. Uh, they're called the Cameron Crazies, and for good reason. Now, I had never been in there until the opportunity I got to go to this game, and I couldn't believe, because when you watch it on TV, you think it's really, really big, but when you get in there, it's actually quite small, and they jam thousands of students in there, and they're all dressed like this, and they have this little ritual that they follow when the members of the opposing team are introduced. The announcer will say, and starring for the such-and-such team, and the player will run out to the, to the court. And the Cameron Crazies in unison, thousands of them go, Hi, Kirk, you... And they don't say this. They say something I can't stay, say in church. They say, you stink. And, and the whole crowd, they, they do this for the entire introduction. It's a lot of fun. Now, I happen to like the Duke Blue Devils, but I also have friends, like my good friend Joseph McCormick, who is downstairs teaching right now, and I warned him about this, who are also uh, they're loyal, devoted followers of the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. And the Tar Heels hate Duke. They hate them. A few years ago at Denver Seminary, uh, one of our students uh, was an entering student, and I, on the first day of class, I always do introductions, and I had the students introduce themselves, and this one guy said, my name is Drew Hill, and I'm a graduate of the University of North Carolina. I said, Drew, great to have you here. I said, do you hate Duke? He said, Dr. Winnig, I was under the impression that this was a Christian institution. Please do not use swear words in class. Melanie and I have some good friends, and they're Tar Heel fans, they hate Duke so much that they taught their dog to play dead whenever they said the word Duke. <laughs> North Carolina fans and Duke fans are deeply, deeply, deeply devoted to their teams. 
No one will ever question their devotion, and they show that every time their teams step onto the court. Now, every person in this room has something or someone that you are deeply, deeply devoted to. For some of you, it's your spouse or your kids or your grandkids. For some of you, it might be your dog or your cat or another pet. For some of you, it might be your job or a hobby or a team or a sport. For some of you, it might be your house or your car or your best friend. And that's all good because all of us, all of us here have certain people and certain things or certain activities that we're devoted to. And I'm guessing that almost all of us here, if not all of us here, would claim a deep devotion to Jesus of Nazareth. And if so, with good reason. I mean, after all, Jesus is the one who says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Uh, Jesus is the one who tells us, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go there to prepare a place for you so that you may eventually be where I am. And Jesus also tells each and every one of us, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. And Jesus is the one who proved his love to us by going to the cross for each and every one of us. So for many, many, many good reasons, we all... All feel a deep devotion to Jesus. But you know this and so do I. Sometimes things come along in our lives and they put significant pressure on us. And when those pressures come, we are all of a sudden faced with what we might call a conflict of loyalties. And it's at that point we're faced with making a really, really, really hard choice about who or what we're ultimately devoted to. And that's what this story in Daniel chapter 3 is all about. As I said a few moments ago, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this great statue, and he realizes that he's the head of gold. And he's very thankful that Daniel interprets the dream for him and lays it out for him and solves the crisis at court. And at the end of that, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar does say, well, Daniel's God is a great God, and he's the Lord of Lords. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar has a selective memory. As he reflects on the dream and he reflects on that stone that was cut without hands that reflects the kingdom of God and how that stone crushed that statue and eventually took over the whole earth, he forgets about God and he forgets about the rock, but he remembers the statue from his dream and that he was the head of gold. And he remembers that the feet of the statue were made of iron and clay. In other words, they're symbolically representative that they're vulnerable. And he concludes, I think, rightly so, rightly so, that his kingdom is vulnerable. And he has carved out this massive empire, and it's filled with all kinds of different people from all kinds of different lands and different languages. And he needs to bring unity to his empire if it's going to be stable. Uh, Even in the United States here, we wrestle with that because on many of our public buildings, there's that Latin phrase printed out, e pluribus unum. Out of the many, 
one. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is struggling with. So given his multicultural society, he decides that some form of common civic religion is needed to keep the various elements of his empire unified and healthy. And in the ancient world, religion was often defined as that which binds us together. So as we see here in the beginning verses of Daniel chapter 3, what Nebuchadnezzar does is he creates this enormous statue of gold and he proceeds to create this prominent public event for his new Babylon with all the government officials there in attendance to inaugurate it. Now what this statue represents, we're not told, it's, it's left intentionally vague. Because what this event is about is it's about political and cultural unity. And it's obvious that Nebuchadnezzar feels really, really strongly about this because he's invested a huge amount of money in this. I mean, the statue is made of gold and it's huge. And it's probably very artistically done. And it looks like he gets hundreds of musicians there from what the text says with all their instruments to assist with what we might call this massive worship service. And just so everybody is crystal clear about his intention, Nebuchadnezzar, as he always does, throws in some negative reinforcement. Everybody's commanded to bow, and anyone who does not bow will be thrown into the fiery furnace. So let's picture what this might have looked like out there on the plain of Dura. It's this massive public spectacle of art and music and government, and it's all mixed in together. I mean, most of us here at one point or another have probably watched the opening spectacle of the Olympics with all the teams coming forward and all the countries and all the flags. Well, that's something like what was going on here in the plain of Dura, except it's supposed to be a transcendent religious experience to promote cultural and political unity. And as it says here in Daniel 3, verse 7, as soon as that musical entourage began to play... All the people bowed down to the golden statue. The word that's used in verse 7 for fell down is an interesting word. It's, it's a very vibrant word. It literally means as they were falling, they were hearing. In other words, they were racing to see who could hit the ground first. But suddenly, suddenly, there's a noise that kind of runs through the crowd. There's a ripple of shouts. There's a gasp. Because amidst all the music and the hoopla, right near the front, right near the foot of that statue, there are three men, three of the highest ranking men in Nebuchadnezzar's government, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And while everybody else is down on the ground bowing to the statue, they are standing up right and all of a sudden everybody's eyes are diverted from the statue to these three young men who have not bowed and according to verse 8 this is what happens next some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews now, these astrologers were working under Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Babylonian bureaucracy. And obviously, they don't like the fact that they were elevated over them. And the word that's used here for denounced means literally to eat pieces of them. 
It could be translated slander, but the intent that the author wants us to know is that there is a strong sense of intense hostility that's being communicated here to the king against these three men. And they come forward and they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, you commanded everybody to bow down, but these these Jews, these Jews refuse to bow to your statue, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, if you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, you just know how Nebuchadnezzar is going to respond. Look what happens here in verses 13 and following. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, I'm going to give you a second chance. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pieces, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God is there who can rescue out of my hand? And these three young men are faced with a raging ruler in a fiery furnace. And it's interesting here at the end, Nebuchadnezzar asks them a rhetorical question. What God is there who can rescue out of my hand? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you, you know this. Rhetorical questions are not designed to be answered. They're designed to communicate information. I mean, those of you who are parents, you get this. You you do this with your kids. Do you want a spanking? You're not expecting the kid to say, well, you know, Dad, actually I was planning on playing Xbox 360, but a spanking sounds like a really good idea. No, when you ask a rhetorical question, you don't expect an answer. Nebuchadnezzar is not gathering information from them. The meaning of his question is, you will bow or you will die. But here's one of the great things about this narrative. This is not a rhetorical question to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. i got to tell you, I, I love this, and I think you love this too, because look what they say here. The God we serve is able. He is able. And you know, you know what? If we had a praise service here today where we asked everybody in this auditorium to come up here on stage and share just one event that happened in their life where God, who is able, came through for them, that, that, that praise service would go on for hours because every one of us here, every single one of us could say, my God is able, my God came through for me here because he's the great and sovereign God. Our God is able. But here's what's even more important and I want us to make sure we get this about their response look what they say next 
But even if he does not, Nebuchadnezzar, even if he does not, we want you to know, king, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. And I've got to tell you, I look at their wholehearted devotion to God. And it makes me ask, where does commitment like that come from? How is such wholehearted devotion to God developed? Well, I'd like to suggest that this process, and they're young here, but this process began many, many years before. I'd like to suggest that when they were back home in Judah, before they were exiled to Babylon, when they were growing up, they sat on Mama's knee. And Mama told them, "Uh, you need to know, son, that there is nothing more important in life than our God and worshiping Him above everything and everyone else. And then they watched Daddy model that. And they watched Daddy make sacrifices to serve God. See, they saw Mama and they saw Daddy at home building into them by their own words and their own practice, wholehearted devotion. Last uh, month, we had the graduation of Denver Seminary, and our speaker for this year was Wesley Stafford, who had been the uh, president of Compassion International. And this is just my opinion, but I've admired Wesley for years. I think he's one of the greatest leaders that I've ever seen. And I didn't know he was speaking at our our commencement service, and... uh, It was great. I got to go up and meet him, and I said, Dr. Stafford, can I ask you a question? Privilege to meet you. said, given the fact that you travel all around the globe and you're very much in touch with what the Lord's doing globally around the world, what should the church be focused on going forward? And he smiled, and he said, "Uh, well, Scott, you're stepping into my trap. And I said, great. Let me step into your trap. And he said, you know this. He said, the church is always always just one generation away from extinction. So the key place we need to invest our time, our energy, and our resources are in children. Or in children. You know, two weeks ago, Pastor Tim took me downstairs in this facility and showed me what you all have done in this church with your children's ministry. And I stand up here and I salute you. You are investing in children. May you continue to do that. Well, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were invested in deeply by their parents when they were growing up. And then they get to Babylon. You remember from chapter 1, they make that hard decision along with their friend Daniel to not eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, and they sacrifice to do that. And then in Daniel chapter 2, they join with him, once again, sacrificially, to do that all-night prayer vigil so that the Lord of heaven will show them the king's dream and its interpretation. Uh, Friends, the choices that you and I make today are always a lot more important than we think they are. Because the choices we make today push us one direction or another, and the choices we make today to be devoted to God or not determine where we end up down the road. I don't think anybody ever said this better than C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity. He said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. 
That's why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you'll be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Friends, every one of us in this room, there's no exceptions here, we're all faced with some choices today, tomorrow, this week coming up. And the decisions we make on those choices will determine our future. How we spend our money, what we look at on the internet, the relationships we choose and how we manage those, the type of effort we put in at work or school or church, how we deal with our emotions. At key places along the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made some small choices that eventually in time gave them the emotional and the spiritual muscle to stand in deep devotion to their God, instead of bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And we sit here, and we rightly so, we sit here and we look at them and we admire them for their faithfulness and their courage courage and their, their integrity. But that's not how Nebuchadnezzar saw it. Then the king was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. They had been favored servants, but not anymore. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing fire. You know, they won't bow. He's going to get rid of them. But he's not only going to get rid of them. The text says that he wanted the furnace heated seven times more. Now, in the ancient world, to burn someone was a sign of complete dehumanization. But he's so angry and he's so out of control, he wants this furnace superheated so that they'll be thrown in and consumed immediately. I used to own this small house over in Englewood, and when I bought it, I put in a wood-burning stove to help save on utilities, and I really didn't know much about how these stoves worked, and one time during the first winter, I packed it full of wood, and I got it going, and it was going really good and putting off some heat, and I went into the bedroom to do some work, and I came out about 20 minutes later, and the wood burner was glowing red, and the pipe was really red, and I realized, oh, oh, I think this is what they call superheating. And it can burn your house down like now. And I had to put gloves on and tighten down the vents and close it down and eventually it cooled down. But in this case with this blazing furnace, Nebuchadnezzar wants it heated so much, so fast, that anything and anyone that gets close to it will be consumed. And before we go on, I want us to pause here and take note of a detail that the author tells us in this text. The detail is, the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were burned up. They were burned up. 
Now, we would expect the three young Hebrews to be burned up, but these soldiers were burned up. This is interesting, isn't it, if you think about it? Those soldiers almost certainly bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They just get close to it, and they're burned to a crisp. Friends, you and I, and we're we're told this, you know this, 24-7, 365, we're told in all kinds of ways, media, all kinds of other ways, that we should bow to the gods of our culture. Money or sports or entertainment or work or self, whatever it is. We're told all the time that we should bow because we're told if we bow, we'll find life. But I think what this text shows us is even if you bow to the gods of the culture, you might find out way too late that they will burn you up. They'll burn you up. And that's why it's so important that we pay careful attention to the rest of this story. Look what happens next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. They're in the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar sees them. And they're walking around. They're not gone. They're alive. They're unbound. And there's a fourth individual in there. And it's obvious that he's got power over nature and he's got power over death. And he looks like a son of the gods. This is what biblical scholars and theologians call a theophany. ...of God to his people on earth. Now, different commentators and different theologians differ in their interpretations on who this fourth person in the furnace is. In my opinion, I think he's not a son of the gods. I think it's the son of God. I think this is Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. And I think he gets there in the fire with them and he gathers them together in a small group. And I think he fellowships with them. And I think he tells them how proud he is of them, that they didn't bow. And I think he tells them, you know what, in future generations, millions and millions and millions of God's people are going to be inspired by your great example. And I think they worshipped him. And they thanked him. Because once they got into the fire, all of a sudden it became one of the greatest experiences of their lives. Friends, we need to know this. I need to know this, and so do you. Their deep devotion to their God got them thrown into the fiery furnace. But what is of equal significance that we need to know? Once they got in there, God met them in the furnace. See, sometimes when we honor God in life, We get out of the fiery furnace. But sometimes not. And what we need to remember is, when we get thrown in the fiery furnace, God is there to meet us. It may look hot, it may feel horrendous, but when God is in there with us, when Jesus is in there with us, 
that can actually be a heavenly place. In his comment on this text, Pastor John Ortberg makes what I think is a great observation. He says, Jesus meets us in the furnace because he's a furnace kind of God. See, going into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought it was the end. But it turned out to be the most profound experience of their lives because once they got in the furnace, that's where they met Jesus. And that's where you find out how much Jesus loves you. Now, there's a tendency within all of us here, and I will step to the front of this line. My wife and I were talking about this this week. We all have a tendency, and our culture really reinforces this in us, so I'm going to be honest with you and say I certainly have this tendency. It's a tendency to do what we might call furnace avoidance. You know, as followers of Jesus, sometimes we pray this, Oh, God! Deliver me from pain and discomfort and suffering and inconvenience. Make my path smooth. Make my way easy. Make my life comfortable. Give me lots of prosperity. But after you've lived life for a while, you realize life really isn't that way. And one of the reasons we need to study texts like Daniel chapter 3 is because they show us that Jesus meets us in the furnace. Can I make a suggestion to all of us here today? And once again, I'm preaching to myself here. Please know that. Can I ask us to quit asking for less fire, less heat? To quit asking for a richer, easier, more secure life? Because generally speaking, friends, life just isn't that way. We live in a fallen world. But even more importantly, we want to quit asking for that because we might end up missing out on something greater, more significant, and more important. We might miss meeting out on Jesus. Because Jesus is a furnace kind of God. Friends, Jesus is all about, we saw this last week, he's all about extending his rule and his reign over planet earth. That's what he's about. He's about the advancement of his kingdom. He's about men and women and children coming to know him in a deeper way. And that might mean you and me moving beyond our commitment to comfort and prosperity and security. What Jesus wants is he wants us to be passionate about him and passionate about his kingdom and totally devoted to those. And so maybe a better prayer to pray, maybe, 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 just maybe, is, Lord, if my devotion takes me into the furnace, that's okay because I know that in the furnace you're going to meet with me and be with me and refine me into the person you want me to be because you're a furnace kind of God. There's something else I want us to notice here that's a detail in this text that I think is important. You know, these three young men get thrown in the fiery furnace, and they were not much older than you. And when they were thrown into that fiery furnace, you remember what it said, they were all bound up, and they were thrown in. But I want us to notice something here. Nebuchadnezzar approaches the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their hinge singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
You know, in the fire, in the fire, they're released from their ropes. They're wandering around talking to Jesus. And when they come out of the fire, there's no smell of fire on them. They meet Jesus there in the fire, and Jesus frees them in the fire. Here's what I'm guessing. Some of you in this room today might be in the furnace of some kind of relational conflict, and you're feeling really bound up by that. I think what Jesus may want you to do is go into the fire with him of that relational conflict, but he wants you to let him release you from former dysfunctional patterns of behavior. To be in relationship with people like he would be. To be honest and truthful and loving. And to move towards relational health. Some of you in here, maybe, 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 just maybe, might be in the furnace of career crisis. You know, there's something going on and you're not exactly sure what's happening or what the Lord wants you to do. And he might be having you in the furnace today because he's directing you to a different career path that's better for you and better for your family. Some of you today might be in the furnace of financial pressure. And the Lord wants to meet you in the furnace and he wants to help you make a budget and be disciplined about what you spend and what you save and give. And some of us in here, some of us in here, there's a greater purpose why we're in the furnace today. And the purpose is that God wants to use us to reach some people who don't yet know him. These Babylonians, including Nebuchadnezzar, did not yet know the Lord. And yet the Lord cares about them, and he wants to see them come to know him. And so the Lord lets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown into the furnace, and they come out, and it gets everybody's attention. They realize this is a genuine A1 miracle only done by a God who could do that because he's a furnace kind of God. Look what the king says here. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defined the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god, no other god can save in this way. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not a Bill of Rights kind of guy, okay? <laughs> Let's tell the truth. He's not into religious freedom. But something's going on with him spiritually because in Daniel 1, he sees that these exiles stand out. And as I tried to point out two weeks ago, they stand out because of the grace of God. And then in Daniel chapter 2, there's a crisis. And Daniel comes forward as one of the exiles to help resolve the crisis. And now in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of their deep devotion to their God, are willing to be thrown into the fire. And it's beginning to make a dent on him. Question for me, question for you. Are we willing to go into the furnace for Jesus and allow him to use our deep devotion? to try to reach some people for the gospel. Uh, listen to me, I'm going to be honest with you. I live in seminary world and church world and I love it. And I'm not 
unaware of the fact that the marketplace and public education, which I was in at one point in my life, and the neighborhood can sometimes, sometimes be a hostile environment and feel like a furnace. And maybe you are in a public context right now, and it feels like a furnace to you at work or at school or in the neighborhood, but you're the only one there. You're the only one there. And God wants to use your deep devotion to Jesus to show people. This is what the love of God looks like in this context. Years ago, when I was in grad school, I was on staff at our church part-time and had a role in an evening service that we did. There was a service just like this. It was a worship service. And I got to preach there sometimes. But the other part-time job I had to pay bills was I was delivering pizzas for Domino's. This was back in the day when you could at least make a little bit of money delivering pizzas. I didn't like delivering pizzas for Domino's. I was a graduate student. I had an MDiv from Denver Seminary, but I had to do that because my church could only afford to pay me this much. But I thought, you know what, since I'm here, I'm going to try to do a good job, and I'm going to try to reach out to these people. And It was a pagan environment. So I started praying for people and just trying to talk to people. And there was this one guy I got to be friends with, and his name was Joe. And I was scheduled to preach this one Sunday night, and I said, Joe, why don't you come to church? Just come to church. It's at 5 o'clock. You're not working that night. Come to church. And I kept bugging him and praying for him, and that night came, and I was getting ready to preach. At 5 o'clock, Joe walks in with his girlfriend. They came to church. Now, they were drunk. (laughs) They were drunk, but they came to church. And I preached and tried to get the gospel out, and they scooted out as soon as the service was over. I saw him at work a couple of days later. I said, Joe, it's so great that you came to church. What would you think? And he goes, dude, you preach a long time. You know, I don't know exactly what's going on in your life today or where you're at, but I do know this, because it's true for me and it's true for you. Our final moment in this life is going to come, and we're going to act based on what we really, really, really believe and what we have devoted our lives to. And I don't know what you're facing today. And I don't know all the implications of that for you, but I know this. If we're in the furnace, if you're in the furnace, Jesus is there with you. See, he's the one who told us, fear not. Though you pass through the flames, they will not burn you. They will not destroy you. He's the one who said... I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's the one who says, I will meet you in the fire. So, friends, if you're in a hard place today and a hard choice needs to be made, or you find yourself one this week, choose, choose to follow Jesus. As the apostles once said a long time ago, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be Saved, And as King Nebuchadnezzar says here at the end of this encounter with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fourth man in the fiery furnace, there is no other God. There is no other God. There is no other God who can save in this way. 
I'm going to have you stand. Take somebody by the hand. We're going to close the service today with the benediction. Jesus, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you that you are here with us today and every day, whether life's good or whether we're in the furnace. Lord, bless each person here today. Bless them this week. Give them a great week serving you and serving others. And keep your hand of grace on this church. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Hey, have a great day and a great week, and happy Father's Day, dads.